This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant. This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer. Hi, everybody. Welcome to episode number 40, recorded on May 13, 2014. I'm your host, Tim Cripe from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. And today we have a special episode coming to you from Cologne, Germany, from the Advances in Neuroblastoma Research Congress held there recently. It features two new co-hosts, Dr. Carrie Streeby, a new faculty member here at Nationwide Children's Hospital, and Dr. Neelay Shaw, a physician scientist here at Nationwide Children's Hospital, who both attended that meeting. Today's episode is them sitting down with two luminaries in the field of neuroblastoma research, Drs. Garrett Brodeur and Robert Seeger, discussing their perspective on the current state of research in neuroblastoma. And I'm going to turn it right over to Neelay for their exciting conversation. We're very happy to have as our guest, first, Dr. Robert Seeger. Thank you very much for inviting me. Dr. Seeger is a section head for research at Children's Center for Cancer and Blood Diseases uh, at Children's Hospital of Los Angeles, as well as the director of the cancer program at the Savan Research Institute. He actually is our first repeat interviewee. Uh, you can listen to his wonderful episode 10 that was done with, uh, with Dr. Kripe in 2011. Uh, we also have with us Dr. Gare Britter. Thank you for inviting me. He is the Associate Director for Research in the Division of Oncology and Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania slash Perelman School of Medicine. And he's also the Associate Director of the Abramson Cancer Center. And so we're very happy to have these uh, two prestigious researchers and physicians with us. And joining as well as my co-host, uh, Carrie Streeby, one of our fellows at Nationwide Children's Hospital. I'm excited to be here as well. Great. You two gentlemen, a total of over 400 publications between the two of you, long-standing history of collaboration. Out of those publications, 43 actually, you're both authors on. Dr. Seeger, your first publication was in 1970, Dr. Broder, yours in 1976, but of course the, um, the landmark paper in Science in 1984. The, the authorship on that paper is, is just remarkable. Dr. Manfred Schwab, who's the first person to, to clone the McKen uh, proto-oncogene, uh, Dr. Broder and Dr. Seeger, as well as Harold Varmus and J. Michael Bishop, two Nobel laureates. So if you gentlemen can't, just give us a little background on, on how did this collaboration come to be? How did you get into uh, the scientific aspect of work being physicians? What was that era like in the, in the 70s and 80s? I would say there were, before we get into that, two landmark papers, including the yes. uh, New England Journal uh, paper that followed with Bob Seeger as first author that really demonstrated the uh, clinical relevance to MCN amplification as a prognostic marker. But uh, the uh, collaboration evolved somewhat fortuitously. Uh, I was called, when I was a postdoc in, in, at Washington University, I got a call from Mike Bishop and he said, uh, we found CMIC amplified in a colon cancer cell line and we saw your publications on evidence for amplification in neuroblastoma cell lines and uh, wanted to look and see if any viral oncogenes were amplified. And so I sent them the lines and uh, Manfred Schwab did the work and demonstrated that a 
CMYK-related gene was amplified, and it, it was subsequently cloned and, and called NMYK or MYKN. So uh, as I didn't want to just donate the cell lines, I wanted to contribute to the study and, and uh, wanted to see the, the relevance in, in uh, primary tumors. So uh, that led to my connection with Dr. Seeger because I knew he had established a bank of neuroblastomas for just such a purpose. And so uh, we embarked on the collaboration first for me to determine if uh, MCN was amplified in primary tumors and if so, how prevalent it was. And then uh, he did the work showing the uh, clinical significance of this and the correlation with disease stage. So this collaboration was a very interesting one. We have a, a common friend, Bill Benedict, who uh, Garrett knows and I know, and, and Bill called me up and said, hey, this guy in St. Louis wants some tumor samples to test. <laughs> and so... Uh, Real bad. And so, <laughs> now, was it as hard to get tumor samples back then as it was started, now or harder? <laughs> absolutely. I started collecting tumor samples in the late 70s. It was probably one of the first tumor banks of any disease, any cancer. And so uh, I was very interested in oncogenes. I'd been collaborating with some people to try to fish out oncogenes from 3T3 transformation, and no luck. So I got right on the phone and called Dr. Brodeur, and uh, we started a collaboration. So I had tumor samples with clinical data from the then called the Children's Cancer Group, mm -hmm. and uh, sent him, you know, 20 or 30 samples to start with, different stages of disease. And he sent me back the southern blots, and I can remember sitting, and he, this was all coded. And I can remember <laughs> sitting at my desk and looking at his southern blots, and my God, <laughs> it was unbelievable. It was a high-stage tumor, had mm -hmm. big signal on the southern blot, and the low-stage didn't have any of that smaller sample. So that was, that was a, a eureka moment. So that was the genesis of the first paper that showed amplification in relationship to stage. And so then we clearly had to see if it meant anything in relationship to outcome. And so we sent more tumors, I think, about 100 tumors, which these days is a small number to study, but that had uh, tumors from each clinical stage. And so we studied those, and, and uh, in fact, it did predict outcome, not only for stage 4 patients, but for patients with stage 3 disease and stage 2 disease. And so it looked really impressive and that uh, got it into the New England Journal. So that, that was a, a really a tremendous collaboration for us both, I think. And uh, it's hard to believe it was 30 years ago, the first paper in science. Absolutely. Yeah, actually. 29 yeah. years yeah. ago. But, you know, we can see in the meeting today how important NMIC is and MIC N still. And it's a really important prognostic marker. And now, finally, we're getting to the point um, where people are figuring out how to drug that, yeah, mm -hmm. that uh, the protein in particular. So right. it's, it's very exciting. Yeah, and that's clearly been the challenge since you, yeah. since the landmark discovery I, I of what does it do and, and really how do we. Attack really it. exciting stuff that's come out by you know targeting the PA3K mTOR, mm -hmm. targeting orokinase A. This is Bill Weiss and Clay Gustafson's yep. work, and then the BRD4 mm -hmm. work that's uh, been done uh, that, that was published recently. Weiss and Gustafson on the paper. It was the first author. Right? Mm -hmm. Can't remember the first author. You can look it up. I think yeah. Clay, I believe, was yeah. uh, was the first yeah. author in that one. And so uh, it's a. Uh, so there's there now are becoming ways to target this, and it's really important because in a recent COG study of high risk patients, forty two percent of the stage four patients had MECAN amplification. So that's the biggest 
if you want a target in genomics, go after NMIC. Absolutely. And then I think the the microRNAs or other ways to go after it. There's, mm-hmm. I think in the next five years we'll have ways that we can take down NMIC. And Weiss has already shown that if you take it down with PI3K mTOR mm-hmm. inhibitor, the vasculature collapses, so it impacts the microenvironment, too, yeah. which is really important. Yeah, there have been studies looking at the uh, uh, genomics of neuroblastoma, looking for mutations and. You know, uh, high throughput sequencing on, uh, of exons or whole genomes, and they found relatively little. What most people say is ALK is the most commonly mutated gene in 8 or 10% of the tumors, but MCN is, is mutated by amplification in 20%, so it's actually the most commonly... 20% overall. Overall, overall. absolutely. And in the high risk, it's, it, it's 40%. Yeah, 40 to 50%. Yeah. So. Absolutely. So clearly a, a critical factor, and, and uh, as you guys... Uh, referred to with uh, with Dr. Weiss's research and the utility of uh, newly developed uh, animal models, particularly the the THMCN mouse and the ALK mutated uh, variants there, as well as Dr. Uh, Look's um, MCN um, uh, amplified zebrafish model. Um, so a lot more available as far as tools go there. Um, the uh, as we look forward to drug development, drug targeting, what do you see as the, the greatest challenges that, that remain at this point? We've done uh, great levels of genomic evaluation through the GWAS study. We're uh, really getting far deeper into uh, um, RNA-seq and, and methylation studies, particularly through Target, in which uh, Dr. Seeger is um, a leader in that with, uh, with Dr. Khan out of the NCI. But um, you know, are we really getting to the point where we're have we found the information? Is there what other ways do we need to uh, investigate this? And in particular, uh, the uh, the um, organog- the oncogenesis of neuroblastoma. We still don't really understand uh, that step. Well, I, I think uh, the relative paucity of, of gene mutations. Uh, I don't know. If it was surprising to people, but I guess it was surprising to some people who mm-hmm. hoped to. Uh, find another BCR bone, and then just put yeah. Glee back in and it's going to cure the disease. Um, but it's not that simple. And so I actually think that analyzing tumors from patients who've relapsed may reveal um, some changes that could actually be there at diagnosis. It's just there are so few cells that they're not picked up by the usual sequencing methods. Uh, but I think overall the, the idea of finding a target, hitting it with a drug, may be a little naive, and that it's really going to require combinations, uh, and it may still require good old chemotherapy or radiation, you know, uh, and immunotherapy. In mm-hmm. fact, I'm biased toward the immune system. I think the immune system <laughs> can probably recognize things better than sequencers can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. so, uh, T cells, natural killer cells, uh, antibodies, and so on. And we know that there's one antibody, the NAG2 antibody, that's shown efficacy. So uh, we have a long way to go, but I think the amazing thing in the last 30 years to me is the way the tools have improved, our understanding's improved, and I'm optimistic in the next 10 years we're going to go a lot farther from it. Yeah, so I think uh, we've learned that there aren't going to be a lot of actionable targets based on mutation analysis alone or DNA rearrangement alone. So I think it's going to uh, rely more on copy number effects, uh, epigenetic alterations in expression of genes or sets of genes, 
that regulate growth, differentiation, and apoptosis. Um, so I, I think it will be increasingly important to profile tumors at an expression level. It's easier to do it at the RNA level than at the protein level, but ultimately it's the protein that matters. So uh, I think we'll be moving in that direction. And, and I think, uh, as Bob said, we're going to need combinations of approaches. And I can see four uh, avenues of therapeutic approach that one can potentially uh, deliver in a targeted way. Uh, one is the targeted drugs, which are generally small molecule inhibitors that, that are selective or specific for a particular pathway. A second is immunotargeted immunotherapy, uh, and anti-GD2 is one of the more obvious targets, but there may well be others, and I think not only antibodies, but the you know, chimeric antigen receptor modified T cells and, and another cellular immunotherapy approaches may be of value. Uh, a third approach we're already doing or have been doing for a while is targeted radiation therapy with uh, MIBG, uh, metaidobenzylguanidine, and labeled with I131 or potentially other um, radionuclides that could be targeted using uh, alpha emitters. Mm -hmm. um, and a fourth is targeted delivery of conventional drugs. So I, I agree with, with Bob that we're probably going to still need conventional therapy, but there may be ways in which we can deliver it in a more targeted way. And some of the work we've been doing, we can get 10 to 100 times as much drug into the tumor with the same dose using these uh, nanoparticle delivery vehicles. Uh, so I, I think we'll see, on the one hand, profiling it of tumors at the DNA, RNA, and protein levels, and even profiling of the patients to identify susceptibilities uh, to not only to the tumor or other tumors, but to uh, side effects of drugs. And then the uh, four-pronged uh, targeted approaches to delivering uh, agents. So uh, I, mean, I, th I think it's going to take combinations, and what we choose for a particular patient will be based on the profiling of the tumor in the patient that help us help guide us towards the, the most actionable targets for that patient's tumor and also what the patient can tolerate. So definitely a, a, an approach of personalized medicine combined with a, a better use of the armamentarium that, that we have and are currently developing. Exactly. So. Just to comment on the targeting of current chemotherapeutic mm -hmm. agents with uh, nanoparticles or liposomes, there's some really fascinating work that's come out of Ralph Reisfeld's lab where you can put doxorubicin, for example, into a liposomal mm -hmm. particle that will target a molecule called legumine, okay. and legumine is expressed in hypoxic areas of tumors and also by M2 macrophages, which are in tumors. And so mm -hmm. you can deliver huge amounts of doxorubicin without toxicity. So I think the nanoparticle targeting, I completely mm -hmm. agree with Garrett, is going to be a very important area probably to uh, uh, get more mileage out of drugs that we've used for yeah. years and years. <laughs> Absolutely. With that remains a constant challenge of identifying drugs that are uh, of interest for pharmaceutical development companies. For example, you, know, you mentioned uh, using liposomal um, formulations, Doxel has been available, and prior studies had shown that Doxel could be used safely in children to reduce that toxicity, but simply was never picked up. Um, what do you think would be approaches that, that we can take to, to help to, to develop um, uh, these different uh, sources, particularly as 
other research funding sources, particularly from uh, from the NIH and other federal agencies, starts to dry up. Yeah, I, I think that um, one needs a diversified portfolio. It's just like your retirement. <laughs> yeah, it's like your retirement portfolio. You know, you can't have all bonds. You can't have all equities. Uh, and now it's the same way with research funding. You, you you do need your NIH funding. I think it's absolutely necessary. Absolutely. But you have to complement that with the foundation funding. There's now some wonderful foundations that provide a lot of funding for pediatric cancer research uh, and pharma when mm -hmm. you can get pharma interested and yeah. jazzed up about what <laughs> yeah. you're doing. Uh, I think it makes a good package, and uh, that's the way I see we've got to go. We can't depend on just the NIH anymore. With many of the uh, agents that we're beginning to test, they are being developed uh, not because they have a pediatric target, but because they have a more lucrative adult target. So uh, I think uh, Curzatna being a wonderful mm -hmm. example of that certainly is uh, out targeted in, uh, in lung cancers as well as neuroblastoma. Exactly, and uh, we also did some testing of a track inhibitor, um, mm -hmm. Lestartanib, which is no longer being d developed clinically, but there are a number of second-generation uh, track inhibitors mm -hmm. which look much more selective and specific and much more promising. Uh, but but I, don't, I do not think that pharma would be developing these drugs if the target audience was three or four hundred neuroblastoma patients a year. So we have to find things that also have uh, some evidence for activation, even in a small percentage of adult cancers, because five or ten percent of lung cancers far more than all of pediatric cancer. So uh, if we can find a target in breast, colon, lung, prostate, ovary, pancreas, um, that also is relevant to pediatric cancers like neuroblastoma, then I think we'll be in better shape. Absolutely. That actually serves as a, as a great segue now. Um, let's talk a little bit about um, the projects that each of you are working on going forward. So we'll start with you, Dr. Breder. You mentioned uh, um, uh, using track inhibitors. Interestingly, your, uh, your first publication was on uh, nerve growth factors uh, prior to uh, the MCN studies, and uh, you've had to come full circle now looking back at modulation of uh, um, the nerve growth factor pathways and with the uh, track A and track B. So can you tell us a little bit about what you're uh, working on and what you're excited about in your own lab? In, in terms of the uh, track studies, um, we're still trying to understand exactly why activation of track A leads to um, differentiation and, and cessation of growth uh, and it's a feature we, we think may be responsible for the differentiation into a ganglion aroma that we see in some older patients and the spontaneous regression that we see in younger patients. So it may involve this pathway. Uh, but uh, interestingly, uh, a similar pathway, track B, is activated by a similar ligand, BDNF, but in this case it leads to a more aggressive behavior with invasion, metastasis, angiogenesis, and drug resistance. So uh, we're trying to understand why the consequences of activating track A and track B are so different. Uh, when we um, uh, know that the signaling pathways are essentially identical, and, uh, but the targets of activation seem to be different, and that's what we're trying to understand uh, how this comes about. So that's one area of interest. Another area of interest is developing some of these new uh, 
second generation track inhibitors that we would like to bring to clinical trial through either the new approaches to neuroblastoma therapy, the NAMS consortium, mm -hmm. or the more uh, uh, general uh, children's oncology group phase one uh, consortium. But uh, the newer generation track inhibitors are much cleaner, uh, much more uh, potent, mm -hmm. and much less protein bound than the uh, first generation drug Lestartinib. So we, we think they're likely to be uh, quite effective in track driven tumors. And do you see those drugs being used uh, more in induction um, settings and, and earlier phases or similar to how we use uh, retinoic acid in maintenance therapy at this point to kind of uh, um, deliver that final nail in the coffin, if you will? So I see two ways in particular where I think they would find a, a place uh, at least. Um, one is in the high-risk tumors, uh, if we treat with lestartanib and then treat with a conventional agent, the cells are much more sensitive to killing. So I think we can get more bang for our buck by having blocking this survival pathway and then uh, following up with conventional therapeutic agents that are known to be effective but would be much more effective uh, in combination with a TRAC inhibitor. Or potentially there are other inhibitors besides TRAC as a target. Sure. Um, second situation where it might be useful is in the uh, infants who have either stage 4S disease with dissemination to the liver and skin. Mm -hmm. In some cases, their livers can be quite massive, and uh, we end up treating them with chemotherapy, radiation therapy, sometimes even opening up their abdomens to allow the liver to grow ex vivo, in a sense, uh, expand outside the confines of the abdomen so they don't uh, undergo severe life-threatening respiratory distress. But so I think in that setting, it might be very effective. But we have to first... To really minimize the, the toxicity and the morbidity of those processes. Exactly. So what we could do is, rather than wait for uh, spontaneous regression to occur and try to keep the patient alive until God decided <laughs> he, was going to, he or she was going to make it regress, that uh, we could trigger the uh, spontaneous regression cascade to occur using a track inhibitor. And that's theoretical at this point, but I, I think there's uh, evidence that this uh, happens uh, mm -hmm. in, in uh, R&B trust studies. Absolutely, and you gotta start somewhere. So, uh, and I think it's, uh, um, uh, you know, it's, it's good to investigate these, these different um, hypotheses, but it's, uh, you're absolutely right, it's a, it's a great challenge to, uh, um, as um, Dr. Berthold uh, presented in um, the German group's um, evaluation of low and intermediate risk disease that however can minimize that, that morbidity would certainly be very helpful. So that's, uh, that's very interesting uh, um, stuff and uh, we, we very much look forward to, to seeing um, many, many more years of, of work <laughs> from that. And Dr. Seeger, uh, similarly, your first studies, um, your first research was uh, in immunology looking at um, uh, macrophages and you similarly come full circle both through uh, the new approaches to neuroblastoma treatments um, uh, evaluations as well as uh, uh, studies with uh, lenalidomide and, and um, uh, as well as tumor-associated macrophages. A lot of work. So what, what do you want to share with us? First of all, um, the integration of bench research with clinical research is absolutely essential. I think the idea of bench to bedside, back to bench is, is critical for anybody starting out in the area of cancer research and, and teamwork, team building is really important. One person can't do everything. So 
that's sort of my philosophical approach. I think as far as uh, neuroblastoma, if we look at where the problems are for high-risk patients, 15% fail induction, so we need better initial chemotherapy in the first five months, cytoreductive therapy. Mm -hmm. Uh, but actually, 40% fail after myeloablative therapy. So, mm -hmm. um, and, and many of those patients, in fact, most of them, achieve a complete remission mm -hmm. post myeloablative therapy, post immunotherapy, and retinoic acid. And so, it's a, it's a failure to eradicate minimal residual disease. And we've actually developed an assay mm -hmm. that's very sensitive, a TACMAN assay. The TLDA assay. TLDA assay that can identify one tumor cell per million in mm -hmm. blood or bone marrow. And we find that 55% of patients uh, who are declared clinical complete remission have detectable signal. And those that do have, uh, most of them, 80% of them, 20% of end-free survival. This is 80%. work that your, uh, your group is presenting uh, here at right. the conference right. Uh, right. as well. So most of those patients go ahead and progress. And so to me, one of the major challenges is how do we treat MRD? And uh, that's where I think immunology is important. But recognizing that where the relapses occur is bone and bone marrow, mm -hmm. usually. Uh, what's the bone marrow microenvironment? Well, we know from preliminary data that there's a lot of TGF-beta-1 in the bone marrow microenvironment. Mm -hmm. This is very immunosuppressive. It's also tumor-promoting. Mm -hmm. So we have to deal with the bone marrow microenvironment, uh, both for drug therapies, even small molecule therapy. There's data in other cancers that the microenvironment impacts the the uh, efficacy of small molecules. Absolutely. So that's a critical thing to deal with in immunotherapy and, and our approach is uh, antibodies and make natural killer cells as hot as we can. Well, that's fantastic. Any final uh, remarks for, for listeners, uh, or the parents of, of our patients as well as uh, trainees and, and other physicians and researchers? Lobby for more NIH funding for cancer <laughs> research. Here, here. Well, I, I think you know, everybody recognizes there's been tremendous progress made in um, in the laboratory in understanding neuroblastoma and its microenvironment, the cells around it. But it's a little frustrating. In fact, it's more than a little frustrating that that same level of progress hasn't been made at the clinical side. And so we have to figure out how to be more efficient at. Uh, performing our clinical trials are going to translate the laboratory discoveries to uh, basically cure more kids that have got high-risk disease. I mean, the intermediate low-risk, uh, yeah, you wouldn't wish intermediate low-risk on anybody, but no, right. still, it's 95% or better are cured, whereas high-risk is still 45%. We've got to do better. So, and we're aiming to do better, and I think we will in the next few years. Absolutely. So... Dr. Broder and Dr. Seeger, thank you very much for your time. It's been great talking with you today. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Neelay and Carrie and Dr. Seeger and Broder. That was a great conversation. We're happy to read your emails during a future podcast and discuss your comments or questions if you send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Twippo Podcast, and you can sign up for automatic notification when using the RSS feed link on the Solving Kids Cancer website if you want to hear about new episodes when they're posted. Once again, as always, thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel options for children. The team includes Donna Lewinsky, our executive producer, and Jenny Song, director of communications. And also thanks to 
Scott Kennedy and John London, who are the founding co-directors of Solving Kids Cancer. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight, and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.